Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Treyoshi Banerjee, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I've been an avid listener, so I'm very excited to be a guest. Great. I'm glad you're here. Treyoshi is uh, a creator of Atlas, a five-step proposal uh, roadmap that guides talented AEC marketers who struggle with creating client-tailored narratives, learn how to craft persuasive proposals so they can win more RFPs. By day, she leads urban design at an economic development nonprofit where she guides urban design strategies and oversees master planning efforts in New York City. She is the 2001 winner of the AIA New York's Service to the City Award for her impactful contributions and innovative uh, innovatives that make New York City a better place, as well as the 2001 Fast Company Innovation by Design Honorary, Honorary Award recipient for her brainchild, Design Corps. Um, Fast Company Award is one of my bucket list goals <laughs> in life, so it's great oh to... My to meet somebody who is uh, who is connected to the award programs over at Fast Company, I'm a I'm a a, a charter subscriber to Fast Company. And ah, really, thank um, you. It was actually 2020, but everything else you mentioned is on the plane. <laughs> oh well, well, that's great. We'll have to uh, we'll have to go take a look at that. Um, let's hear your origin story. Let's start with your origin story. How did you 
uh, discover your passion for architecture and who or what inspired you to become an architect? Yeah, so I mean, this will go way back because yeah, um, sometimes these things are subconscious and you don't even know why you do what you do. So my grandfather, he um, was a civil engineer and town planner in India where I grew up. And um, that was my summer home. <laughs> So I go there and like he would show him his blueprints and he'd talk about how he never finished the third floor. <laughs> so like I always had like architecture in the back of my mind. And then in um, high school, I took a CAD course, which got me interested in either mechanical or architecture. And I ended up with architecture because I'm a more creative person and less, you know, related to, you know, physics and math, which I like, but not as much as drawing and, and you know, creative ideation. So that got me to take architecture, you know, five years, invest in that like BR program. And through that whole process, I started understanding my passion in urban design and like the broader planning picture. So slowly between working at, um, you know, Vignoli and Datner and other architecture firms that are more building oriented, I slowly shifted my recent journey to urban planning and urban design um, on the client side at uh, um, in New York City at an economic development nonprofit. So where where did you discover your passion for urban urban planning? Was that in school or was that after school? No. So this was um, quite, it, it was at a couple of points I discovered it. So again, I grew up in India. I moved here in 1997. So like my whole urban context was very different than in New York City, but like density, equity, issues of like social problems, all of that was top of mind. So I did my thesis in um, Ahmedabad in India twice for undergrad and for my master's at MIT. So in going back and doing all that research, I really wanted to think about cities and, and um, how I can make a positive impact through the planning and architecture lens. So like knowing architecture and how a building is put together, because I did affordable housing at Datner for like over three years and um, institutional work. So it really helped me then figure out working outside in um, how the cities can get put together meaningfully. Yeah. So you have all this experience as an architect and as an urban planner working at some some well-known, you know, um, larger firms. Uh, how did, I mean, you, your course, I was looking at your, yeah. your site and your course, your course is all about proposals and, and how to put yeah. together a per persuasive proposal. I want to know, before we talk about all that stuff, I want to know... Yeah how that how that origin story happened right because everything that yeah. we're talking about so far hasn't <laughs> sort of given me any clue on how you ended oh, yeah. up with your course on 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 proposals so how did how did that origin start okay so that is a very specific point so in my day job i three years ago i've been on selection committees um multiple times and i've seen dozens and dozens of proposals that i've had to review and then shortlist interesting and so was, you're looking at it from the other side from the yeah, from the client yeah. side yeah so by day i'm a client and i like have worked with tons of large consultants um so i have slowly started to pick up the communication gap between design and how clients see that so but pr proposals specifically I was noticing that smaller firms kept making specific mistakes, but they were quite great in reality because I might have worked with one of them, but then their proposal comes through and it doesn't reflect their, you know, like talent at all because it's yeah. not well put together. And it started really like annoying me. And I mean, literally, this was 2018. So I didn't start doing like AI workshops till 2020 because I just couldn't get over the fact <laughs> that I knew all of this information <laughs> being on the other side, like, 50 plus proposals that I like noticed patterns for that I really 
started thinking maybe it could turn into workshops and then slowly the roadmap emerged because I surveyed a bunch of clients and I surveyed a bunch of my ex-colleagues about like, what are your proposal pain points? And then those pain points equated to like how clients saw weaknesses. So then that's kind of the origin of like um, the course. It's been through multiple iterations and now I've piloted it twice. So I'm really trying to get a feel for how I can help to increase like diversity in the client's talent pool too, because the same large firms keep working with large clients over and over again. Right. Interesting. So you're, so you're looking at those proposals, you're seeing patterns, you're seeing mistakes, you're seeing the same firms winning over and over and over again. And so you, so you see that there's an opportunity to help these firms figure this out, get, get this right so they can start winning some of these projects and there's a more diverse pool of architects to be able to choose from when when you're working on your day side so very interesting um so so actually let's go back to those patterns and those mistake mistakes what are some of those patterns that you are recognizing what are some of those mistakes that that small firms are making yeah so i will say that often it's related to how much time it takes to put together these proposals so I can see how it's happening. But it's um, typically very uh, text heavy. And then also in terms of layout and graphic look and feel, it's less polished than perhaps other large firms. So that's at like the more high level, the issues I see where it's very text heavy and and doesn't necessarily talk about everything in like a storyline where you're celebrating your values as a small firm you're celebrating the fact that you can be more nimble and more like tailored to your client so often it's just answering the questions the proposal is asking without kind of the pitching aspect the, the pitch of like um, integrating your past projects and uh, your narrative of like how you will deliver the project um, those things are missing uh, more often than others so people know how to talk about their projects and show them because you know we're architects and you can like do case study cut sheets easier than you can talk about how you deliver the project. But larger firms tend to talk more about quality control and um, QAQC, what I just mentioned, but also like their process, like how they actually get from having a concept to like a buildable design. And that process is often something that small firms don't really pause and talk about. So those are just two like um, mistakes I see. And another mistake, which is something that I think isn't very uh, well known because it's everywhere. It's not just small firms, it's large firms. It's actually star architects too, where when you're at a shortlist interview, because you know, you've made it and thankfully your proposals have really landed for the client. um, The partner, the principal of the firm um, really leads the presentation. And it's because, you know, we have this culture. I mean, having been on the other side, I've actually been in an interview where I've like maybe spoken one sentence, but I was the project manager. But then, you know, we didn't get selected. And now on the client side, I can tell that that just shows that um, the person you might be working on day to day doesn't have the confidence or it comes off as that, which may not even be true. So, yeah. So I, I think these like kind of dynamics that have happened on the other side has like led me to think about how you can like sharpen your interview strategy too by just you know empowering your project managers and like the day-to-day people that will interact with the client so those are that's like perhaps something that's less known yeah yeah you would think that that the client would want to hear from you know the 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 name on the door but it sounds like you you do want to hear that from that person but you also want to hear from the rest of the team and and how they're passionate about the project and how 
they will be, you know, interacting with you and then show some confidence that they know what yeah. they're doing as well. Yeah. And that they will lead it and that they will be the one maybe to be held accountable because the partners also always don't often work on the same project. Right. Um, the whole time. But smaller firms have that advantage that partners are more invested and that's something not many play up. Um, so it's great to have that be celebrated in your narrative. Right. And I can imagine, you know, I, I, I can imagine why, like you said, that architects are, yeah. small firm architects are very busy. You know, they're wearing lots of hats. They're doing the yeah. work. They're, they're out there hustling to get the work. Um, and so the proposals are not as polished as a larger firm that has a whole team of, you know, that are dedicated to putting together these proposals. Um, and so recognizing that they are making some mistakes, are there ways that uh, they can do this better? Your your course, it's, it's actually the title of it is five steps, right? And so is there specific yeah. steps that we can maybe go through on a general level? that yeah. that uh that our listeners can say okay let's go through these these five steps and make sure that we get this right and so next yeah. time they go do a proposal they might be able to compete better absolutely so the first thing that um the first two steps which is articulating your unique value proposition proposition and tuning it to the client is the most relevant um part to start for smaller firms because often um it's hard to pause and think about like what makes you uniquely qualified. So I have this system of thinking about um, what are your values as a founder and your team members values? What are your project values and what are your process values? And by process, it could be like, you know, you value sustainability or you value a specific other thing in the way you deliver your projects and then finding common patterns. So once you have that um, unique value proposition where you know your underlying foundational like advantage, then tune that to your client. And often people just, you know, read the RFP and then they go for responding, but they may not, you know, know enough about the client. So like just doing deep dive research and repeating that same process with like, what are the leadership values in the client side? What are the values of um, um, their processes and their projects? Like that will give you a common language that's shared with the client that off the bat makes you sound more tailored to them. So by just sitting down and brainstorming, you know, that kind of values framework and how it aligns to the client is the first step. And that leads to this like pithy elevator pitch, really, that you can then use as copy um, interspersed throughout the proposal um, in every chapter. And that's another thing like chapters. So that takes you to step three, which is laying out your narrative, um, which I talk about storyboarding. So a good thing you can do is make sure your proposal has a beginning, middle and end. And most often I've seen patterns where the beginning is talk about your firm. It's like the about us page and the qualifications, but talk about your values. It's almost like if you were submitting your firm to win a young architect award or like, you know, one of those AI and other awards, what they ask you for put that in, in the beginning chapter, have like section breaks um, and then get into what is the middle of the proposal, which is what are your qualifications? Um, what are your past projects? And how are those relevant to the current proposal? And then the end could be like your approach, the particular scope. And that's like the beginning, middle and end that we you know, lay out in a storyboard. So that way you can even fill in missing gaps. Like RFPs aren't perfect. Like they are often written badly. <laughs> yeah. And depending on who's writing them, nobody has control. Um, and I'm speaking to it from like all the people I've taught, um, not just from my personal experience, but 
so I think it's important to lay out the narrative to know if, you know, they might be missing something. Like they may not ask for a work plan, but want a work plan. What is your work plan? So things like that. I have like chunks of things that should be in the beginning, middle and end of the storyline and, and what I just mentioned. So that's three steps. And then the last step, the second to last step is assembling a powerful proposal, which just means be visualizing everything, um, like 70% images, 30% text. How do you create like an infographic perhaps out of your process or like the narrative, even if it's a diagram with like text bubbles, that in itself is more skimmable. So that's another tip I really like to talk about is when you assemble the proposal, if you imagine someone like flipping through the pages and deciding how much attention to put while reviewing, like, will you pass that skim test? <laughs> So that's the, um, I, I would say if you think about your proposals as that, you will be like, oh, wait, I, I'm barely, I'm just seeing walls of text. So how can you start bolding things, had, adding headers, captioning your images? I mean, those are very simple things, but most often they, they're not done because it takes that extra layer of time and nobody has that time. But these small things will really end up in the interviews more than if you don't and you'll just be in the reject pile. So the last step is sharpen your interview strategy, which is great if you're at that point, because that means your proposals have stuck and like there's something great about your firm that the client appreciates. So in that last step, I just talk more about how to think about everything the client is caring about when they're asking you for questions. Um, and in general, like a tip I have is identify a project manager and have them lead the presentation, introduce yourself as like a partner or founder and like a visionary, but then really be like, here's my team and how they will actually accomplish everything and how I will support that in itself will like, you know, set you apart when you're um, working and smaller firms may be in a joint venture, they may be a sub. So for them, I would just say, make sure you have a value proposition to share with the client and like, advocate for yourself speaking because if you're there you should be speaking um and and figure out how you fit into the whole like storyline so that's that's the last like you know what are interview strategies what are typical client personas there's always the creative i call myself a creative i'm an urban designer architect but on the client side i'm like listening for like um subject matter expertise like do they know what they're talking about <laughs> and then there are other clients that are project managers principals they're listening for like quality control so like how can you talk about that unique value proposition you settled on in the first two steps in like five different ways and and, and just make sure you address what everybody's thinking about let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Do you have ideas about how to improve the architecture profession? I know you do. If you're listening to this podcast, you definitely have ideas about how to improve our profession. NCARB wants to hear from you. Their ongoing analysis of practice study is your opportunity to shape the future of architecture. Share your experiences and insights from working in architecture and tell NCARB what you wish they would do better. This is your opportunity to let NCARB know what you wish they would do better. Your feedback will help guide changes to the national experience and examination programs for architects and impact what being a licensed architect could look like. Whether you're an architect or you work with architects, NCARB wants to hear from you. 
Make sure your voice is heard. Contribute to the Analysis of Practice study today. Sign up at ncarb.org slash AOP. That's N-C-A-R-B dot org slash AOP. ncarb.org slash AOP. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out your financials on your own is not one of those things. Luckily, there's FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business from building and tracking invoices to managing online payments to organizing expenses and automates them with features like the new digital bills and receipt scanner saving you up to 11 hours per week in the process. 11 hours. FreshBooks has your back at tax time too. It's almost tax time. With a ton of reports to choose from, you'll know exactly where your business stands and you can easily hand the keys over to your accountant so they can take over when it's time to reconcile everything for the year. Try FreshBooks. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. It's free. Go to freshbooks.com slash architect. Freshbooks.com slash architect. Get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So what will you do with your 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by rcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues, but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered, and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, aka CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by ArtCat. Listen and subscribe right now at ArtCat.com slash podcast. That's ArtCat.com slash podcast. A-R-C-A-T dot com slash podcast. Detailed, every building has a story. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you the Entree Architect community. You just gave everybody who's listening five steps to to go back and reevaluate the proposals that they're putting together. Um, it, it, make sure you have a unique value proposition. Tune it to the client. Uh, make sure you lay out a narrative. Um, assemble the proposal. Very interesting. You said seventy percent images, thirty percent text. Um, and that's, you wouldn't think that, right? You'd think you want to write about who you are and what you are, right? But the 30%, the 70% images are probably, you said this, the skim test, you want to flip through it and, and you want to be able to very quickly either see images or see diagrams, very quickly communicate that information that you should be on the pile to go deeper. 
right? And yeah. and then the last step is to make sure uh, that you sharpen your interview skills. Make sure you understand uh, how to present, how not to present. Um, I really love the idea of, of um, highlighting the team and sort of yeah. bringing your team with you and saying, well, here I am. And you said high-level visionary, you know, you know, I, I, I'm the high level visionary, but here's my team. This is the team that makes this thing work. Um, and let them talk and present, uh, super valuable information. Um, what I would also love to hear yeah. from, from the client side, yeah. what is your process? Once, once these proposals start coming in and you get a big stack of proposals on your desk, what's your process from that stack to picking the, the, the one that wins? So that can be a very complex process based on, you know, um, just the system behind the selection committee and, and all of the criteria. Sure. But speaking from like a like a client centered design perspective, I have this like uh, flow chart of like what clients think about when going through it. So first, you really check to see if um, the basic qualifications can be met. Um, and, and that is the skim test. So like a client will have that pile and or a digital pile and like skim through it to know okay are they meeting the basic criteria right. and then they will look at like do they have relevant task projects and if that's a yes or no then they might then look to see okay they may not have relevant past projects but have they demonstrated like thought leadership or done really well in like some other typology and their underlying like foundational skills can be applied to this typology. Um, and you can spell that out for your client in the proposal, call out box and grade that just says relevance to this proposal. Like don't make them think too much, just tell right. them how it's relevant. And, and those things are the skimmable parts. So then if they are a smaller firm, the thing that the mind then goes to like, okay, what about their capacity? Are they going to have capacity issues? So like being upfront about how you are going to um, either partner with people to bolster your capacity or how you're going to just assign members that are working a hundred percent of their time or like, how are you going to make sure you deliver the project is always going to be something that matters. Um, so in that client's decision tree, really like flipping through the proposal, making sure that the, that they are a good fit. The next step is really the interview. And in the interview, like maybe there's like five to five people being interviewed. That's when you just have to come off friendly and personable and just like competent. And that, and, and those are like the advanced kind of <laughs> um, strategies of like, how do you present yourself, answer every question and anticipate questions. So it's very, um, it depends a lot on who's around the table, who's on the selection committee, sure. what they're looking out for. But in the end, it's like, do you have the expertise? Are you, are, do you have competent people? And like, is your process, the people, projects and process. It, that's something that I like the three P's. <laughs> that's some, that's like the values. I, I really encourage people to think about like, what are the values behind your people, the projects and processes so that um, the client just knows um, that, they are aligned to you. So if you tailor yourself to them, they sound like they've done their research about you, that they know your past projects and they're motivated and eager to work. I think it really helps. So I would say, I, I hope that answered your yes, question. Yes, it definitely does. <laughs> is, there, is there, in that early um, process, when you have that pile, whether it's a digital pile or a paper pile, um, is there a sort of a, a go, no-go mentality that, you know, if I have you know, 20 proposals and I need to whittle this down to five. Am I looking through it, skim test saying, yep, 
this one's in, this one's out, this one's in. Is it that quick? Um, so that so that um, the the presentation, that initial seventy percent images, thirty percent text, mm. really really matters because you want to catch that attention, you want to communicate that you are qualified, so you end up in the right pile. Is it really that cutthroat? If there's if it's a really competitive bid, and then there's tons of you know um, firms out there that are applying it. It is that cutthroat for like the first glance. And I think that first glance matters is because, yeah. you know, that's when the and there's not just one person making this decision. Usually right. there's multiple. Right. So like that discussion people will have, like advocating for you to go on to an interview will matter what your first impression is. So that first impression um the imagery and 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 just like the way your proposals come off the storyline it really sticks or it doesn't and if it doesn't then it's like okay well there's 20 people and there's five more more people that are that seem a little bit better suited so yeah the only other reason that you may kind of eke through even if the proposals don't look that good is if you have had multiple past relationships with that mm -hmm. same client and they know that your work is not right. reflected in your proposal but if you're trying to like break through into new typologies or like work with new people I, I just think like making sure your proposals are like well put together is like really important yeah yeah and and you had said that in the beginning that the larger firms are more polished and so that really makes a difference that that when when you present the proposal it really needs to look good and it needs to be able to communicate very quickly and clearly uh, what this team is looking for because um, even if you have like the perfect proposal if it doesn't have that initial um, proper image right that it does that doesn't it's not presented well uh, you potentially could be in the wrong pile even though you may be qualified yeah and then that's where you just kind of have to like almost think of it as having like an executive summary in the front, like mm -hmm. what is what is your who's your firm, um, what is your qualifications, and then also like how um, what is your particular tailored narrative that really matters. So then it's like oh okay, I'll keep reading because clearly these people have like done their research and and they know that you know what their their mission is aligned with the mission of the client. I think the mission alignment also really helps. Yeah. 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 Very interesting, super in, in, uh, informative, very valuable. Thank you very much yeah. for, for sharing all that. Is there anything else that we should touch yeah. on before we wrap things up? Yeah, no, there's one more thing that I, I haven't um, talked about this, but I think when I did my, um, I also surveyed clients on how more emerging firms can break through. And I can talk about like briefly about the findings from that, but really, yeah. um, there were three things that kept coming up. One was doing strategic teaming, two was playing to your strengths, and three was having a powerful story. So, and I can dig deeper. So for strategic teaming, it's like you're a small firm. If you're applying for a larger bid, it's likely, unlikely you will be going at it alone. So it matters to know what bucket you fit in. Like, are you the technical like specialist? Are you a sustainability specialist, like what exactly is your expertise? And then in order to start applying for larger bids, you can start networking strategically and like do strategic teaming, partner with larger firms that make up for your less experience. And you can slowly step up and continue to take on like larger complex projects independently. So it's a ladder. You can't just start off the bat and yeah. be like, I'm going to apply to this and be a prime. But how are you positioning yourself and like kind of 
Are you the community outreach expert, right? Like I often find that like those boutique specialities that smaller firms fit into, but um, if they can articulate that, they can likely team up with larger firms that most often have the same subs all the time. That's another one of my pain points. It's like, there's only two outreach specialists out there that keep showing up. How are, where are these other people? <laughs> so really like articulating what you're good at. So that was teaming. The second thing that came up was that um, often uh, the size of the firm may not matter if you have the right expertise. So playing to your strengths matter um, and telling the client that you're um, flexible also helps because often larger firms are set in their kind of ways and smaller firms are easier to work with if it's like a very like special project um, that might need that nimbleness. Um, and, you know, really talk about how the top people at your firm will be deeply engaged in the work and, you know, have a greater stake in its success. I think that's something smaller firms are really um, at an advantage because of just the way they're run versus like a large international firm, which becomes more like um, uh, just, I wouldn't say generic, but they try not to be, but sometimes can be, you get the same thing over and over. And lastly, you know, the tailored approach really matters. And often when larger firms have marketing teams, like it's their job to do these proposals, but smaller firms don't have large people. So like really knowing the script, like providing a clear and compelling statement of your qualifications, your approach and your personal interest, you know, reaffirm your capacity and just take your time and make it more tailored to the client. And lastly, like anticipate issues and like propose solutions. So Again, that's like the summary of my survey to clients, uh, but it really helps if you are motivated and like you appear very eager to work because eventually you're going to get a yes. I feel like if you're just coming at it from multiple directions, whether you're a sub or a prime, it's just like a, it, sometimes it's like a midterm and long game versus like a very immediate um, payback. So, Yeah, I, I think that uh, small firm architects who, are so busy and have you know uh, proposals that maybe not may not be working um this is an opportunity to go through these five steps take your proposal break it down uh, make sure that that the the general framework of your proposal is right and so that way when you do prepare a proposal yeah. for an rfp it'll be ready to go right you can just sort of tailor it to yeah. the client put in the details get the right images in the right place which I'm assuming is what the course is also helping them do, right? You want to talk a little bit about the course and how the course works? Yeah, absolutely. So I have this um, hybrid course. It's online, and um, but there's live seminars in the evenings. I'm in New York. <laughs> so I go through every step. So I have worksheets and templates around how to identify your values behind your people, process, and projects, and then articulate your value proposition. Then module two goes through like, how do you do research? What are research techniques and how do you tailor that to the client? Um, and in that chapter, there's also, you know, um, things how you can tune yourself in your proposal. Like, how do you predict challenges, pain points? So lots of worksheets, because it's hard sometimes to just like do all of this without a like structure. So I've just provided some structure around it. And in layout your proposal, I have a storyboard template um, and then you can just type it in. Like I have leading questions. So I ask about what are your firm's values? Who's doing quality control? Who's doing this? So like I like prompt you to make sure you answer the things that the client wants to know. And in Assemble a Powerful Proposal, I actually wanted to make this easy for people because 
people like I know if I had my own firm, I didn't want to do graphic design the whole time. So I've literally created templates um, in InDesign or Canva that people can plug and play um, that things that look 70, 30, you know, visual text. So that's something that, you know, I've developed. And lastly, in Sharpen Your Interview Strategy, um, it's kind of um, a tool to do, I guess, a example would be like copywriting like how do you make sure your messaging is tailored to every type of client so like there's different things there's like a whole um worksheet really so I, i've developed these worksheets and um and in a way to guide the person along and then there's seminars every other week or every week on a particular day that just answers questions or goes through content so i've been piloting it now it's my my third iteration of it so if um anybody's interested in learning more just they can reach out and um, go to my website but it's like a rolling thing i do this when i um have the capacity to but i'm really hoping to learn a lot from the people i teach to then be able to like just have it self-paced but i really like showing up for people and talking to them i think i enjoy that so you'll get a lot of face time with me (laughs) that's great so they can ask you one-on-one questions as they go through the process uh, is it is it is it um, sort of assembled as a cohort or just one one person at a time? It's a it's ideally a cohort, like I, like five firms. Yeah. Um, uh, the first time I did it, I was I taught like like a sixty person firm who's like an award winning like firm in um, Long Branch, uh, California, alongside like smaller firms. And then I was like, hmm, I do want them to like learn and get inspired by each other. But is it better to put small firms together? So so right now I'm kind of playing with that a little bit because it's great to even network through this. (laughs) And now if you take it once, you're open to attend, you are able to attend every following seminar. So it's just kind of like a way to keep your proposals um, uh, persuasive and, and then have a platform to talk about it. Yeah. The course is called Atlas, a five-step proposal roadmap. Um, you can learn more about the course at atlas.zoolander, uh, I was going to say. <laughs> New, New Zendler. It's atlas.newzendler.com. Um, and there's you can click on there and, and you can go to the roadmap at that site. We'll actually have a link directly to the roadmap on the show notes for this episode. But if you go to atlas.newzendler.com, N-E-W-Z-E-N-L-E-R.com. Um, that'll get you to to the main site, and then you can go check out the, the roadmap from there. Um, Treyoshi, thank you very much for, for doing the this course, for putting out this information for architects to, to put together better proposals so they can be more competitive and maybe we can win more projects. So I appreciate you being out there and providing this information. Uh, but even more so, I appreciate you coming on the show here today and sharing uh, those five steps with us. And so architects can go learn more about how to put together a proposal. I appreciate you for sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I, I really feel like this is not something many people teach and it's hard. <laughs> it's a black hole out there. So I really would like to kind of promote more diversity and equity and level the playing field, so to speak. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. Thank you. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how Entree Architect will grow to serve thousands more architects just like you. This is our 10th year here at Entree Architect. We launched this thing back in 2012. 
It is 2022, if you haven't noticed. 10 years ago, we launched this podcast, and it's grown to thousands of architects listening every week because you share this link. EntreeArchitect.com slash podcast. Share a link to this episode with a friend. And thanks to our sponsors, RCAT, FreshBooks, and NCARB. We could not do it without you. Thank you for your support. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today on this episode are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. If you haven't gone to Gable Media yet, you need to. GableMedia.com is a, is a place for you. It's built for you. It's curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You are the audience dedicated to building a better world. We built Gable Media for you. Go check it out at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-Media.com. And it's official. November 1st through November 3rd, 2022. Add those dates to your calendar and I will see you at the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting, the first ever live and in-person conference for you, small firm architects. Visit EntreeArchitect.com slash annual meeting right now to learn more. That's EntreeArchitect.com slash annual meeting, and I will see you in Austin. Thank you for listening today. Thank you for listening every week. I appreciate you coming back and sharing links to this episode. Go do that. This episode, go share it with a friend. Thanks for being here. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Cool.
calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.